This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What I'm going to talk to you today about is something very um, near and dear to my heart. I have been preaching uh, language uh, around diabetes for probably 30, before I was a nurse. So more than 30 years ago, I was working in camp environments where kids were talking, our teenagers were talking to us about the judgment they felt from home, from their physicians, because in our camp environment, we were trying to promote a lot of problem solving around what do you do back in those days, um, no sugar was allowed. So in the 90s, they released the sugar restrictions because they realized that sugar comes in all forms, like your white potato, as you learn from Sherry Schaefer, has sugar. And um, I mean, it has carbohydrates were converted into sugar. And so our teenagers were sneaking their food and not taking insulin. And so at, in our camp environments, we were able to promote a very positive approach saying, look, if you're going to do this, you need to take the right amount of insulin. In my case, all these kids had type 1 diabetes and have type 1 diabetes. So they could accommodate for the sweet treat with insulin as opposed to what they were doing, which was hiding it from their parents. And so they begged us to sort of write a language document. And so in the 80s, I sat down at the computer with our medical director, and we wrote up this language document, which we've used since the 80s, around why one should not put value judgments on blood sugars. So value judgments such as calling a blood sugar good or bad. For in a teenager's mind, that sort of defines them as a person. And I think as adults, we're a little bit more established in our identity than to allow the data to define us. But our medical care system is full of judgmental and value-laden language. So I've been teaching this, trying to change providers' way of speaking for many, many, many years, but only in the last two years have our own local, national, excuse me, organizations supported language guidelines. Um, we uh, in the United States are a little bit behind. Australia had a document that came out of about five years ago. The International Diabetes Federation has a philosophy statement on language. And as we get into this, you'll understand when I'm talking about language um, what exactly I mean. And this is really uh, a fun sort of talk uh, and 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 ways of rethinking, calling things good or bad, or um, even using the term just diabetic. And I'm going to give some rationale why why I choose not to do that, and why these language documents support those uh, my teaching philosophy. So you've heard about me. You know what I do. I have no disclosures. Um, so in 2016 was the first time ever printed through the American Diabetes Association, where every year the ADA puts out new standards that are updated yearly, and it's a great, it's like what I call my Bible as a practitioner. I'm always reviewing to find out what's the latest and the greatest on screening and, and therapies, and it's very extensive. It's a whole journal full of standards. And it was the first time they ever said, we are trying to change um, providers and the healthcare um, folks from and, and encourage them not to use the term diabetic. Now that may seem a little bit counterintuitive to many of you. That's why you're here. You're, we're talking about diabetes, um, but there is a very good precedent for this in the disability world, where people are not defined by their disabilities. 
So a person has a disability, they are not necessarily disabled. And I know it's a subtle difference, not everyone agrees with me, but the same thing in my world of pediatrics, I, I have always taught my patients not to necessarily identify themselves wholly by their condition. Um, and so that's called person-first language. Um, and uh, it's also practiced strongly in the world of mental health and serious mental illness because people do not want to be defined necessarily by their mental health conditions. Um, and I think in our world, in the medical world, it's, it's all about efficiency and quickness and using shortened terms is is just a it's sort of a state of being in the medical world. So saying a person with diabetes is a lot um, longer and takes more time than the word diabetic. But the ADA started this in 2016. They now, they now ask all of their journal articles that are being submitted to the organization to use person-first language. So that was exciting. Um, and then in, two years ago, we had the first actual paper on the use of language in diabetes care and education, and the primary author is actually a nursing, uh, an RN, a PhD, um, who's also teaches at Columbia uh, Teachers College, a master's in diabetes, and um, I know Jane, and we've been at several conferences together. She recently interviewed me for a podcast, which will be coming out, I don't know when, um, but it was fun to do the podcast with her. And so this team of people on here, I know most of these authors, uh, Susan Guzman is on our, in our online program. Um, Marty Fennell, the, the, the last author, is sort of the, um, the nurse scientist um, behind the theory of empowerment in diabetes education and, and management. And so this was just a really terrific guideline put together and published both in the American Diabetes Association Journal and the American Association of Diabetes Educators Journal. Uh, so there's a couple resources that I'll show, share with you at the end, um, but the, as I mentioned, the American Association of Diabetes Educators also published it. The IDF had their own document. Um, this is from 2014. Um, and then I mentioned Diabetes Australia also put together a very nice uh, position statement on a new language for diabetes. This is a Rudyard Kipling quote, words, of course, Words are, of course, the most powerful drug used by mankind. And I strongly believe that the way we are spoken to and about in the medical world determines whether the relationship is therapeutic to the provider, um, between the patient and the provider. And, and so I'm going to build my argument as I go through some of the language used and what we prefer to, to do these days based on these new guidelines. So there's four guiding principles um, for communication with and about people living with diabetes. These are straight from the guidelines. Uh, principle number one is that diabetes is a complex and challenging disease involving many factors and variables. And I will just point out that I have even changed my wording around calling diabetes rather than a disease or illness to a condition. Um, and again, I work with pediatrics. And really, the outcomes of diabetes depend very, very significantly on how it is managed throughout one's childhood and young adulthood. And if people are managing, um, they have the resources and we're able to manage the diabetes well, it may not actually be a disease because inherent in the term disease is the potential for a deterioration. Second principle is stigma that has historically been attached to a diagnosis of diabetes can attribute to stress and feelings of shame and judgment. Now, if you have never 
lived with diabetes or another chronic condition where the world thinks that they can remark upon your behaviors, then you may not understand the stigma. But I can share, I will just share, I could share hundreds of stories from my 42 years of diabetes. Um, But I'm going to share some patient stories as well. But I can share one story here in San Francisco. I was a graduate of UC Berkeley. I was working my first job as a research coordinator. I was not an RN at that point. I went back to school when I was in my late 20s. And I worked in an eye research for um, the early treatment of diabetic retinopathy um, with a wonderful physician. And we had a, a, an eye photographer. So she was a specialist who did the, the photography of the eyes. And, um, you know, we would have regular staff little get-togethers for birthday parties. And this woman in front of the entire staff at a volume of voice that everyone could hear asked if I should be, if I should be eating what I was eating. I was a healthcare professional. I was in my probably mid-20s working in a national eye institute research on diabetes in the eye. And this woman thought that it was okay to ask me that question in front of my entire staff group. That is just one of many hundreds of stories that people have shared with me, that I have heard, that I have witnessed. So there is a tremendous amount of stigma that's attached to a condition that the public thinks that they know something about and then therefore can comment upon. Um, and so this is why something like this language document is so important for healthcare providers to absorb. The third principle is every member of the healthcare team can serve people with diabetes more effectively through a respectful, inclusive, and person-centered approach. And I truly believe that. So obviously we want our interactions to be respectful. Inclusive can highly depend on the provider sitting in front of you, but I think more and more the younger trained providers, nurses, doctors, dietitians, etc., that this is sort of a premise of training is that, that we practice patient-centered medicine. We practice sh- what we call shared decision-making. So then we're starting a new drug or we're or offering a new something um, that we are actually d- discussing not only the side effects, the ability to, to, to start that medication, but many of us will talk about costs with our patients as well. The fourth principle is the person-first, strengths-based, empowering language that can improve communication and enhance the motivation, health, and well-being of people with diabetes. So those are the principles that that guide this whole uh, document. Key definitions is strengths-based. I don't think I need to go through these opposites of a deficits approach. Emphasizing what people know and what they do as opposed to what they don't know and what they aren't doing. Now think about that in your, if you are going into a visit and you have a condition that involves self-management, and I focus on, Kari, you aren't exercising, but what Kari has done since the last visit is actually she's checking her sugar and she's um, increased the frequency of her checks and she's actually cut back on the rice intake, et cetera, et cetera. But as a provider, I'm thinking about my list that Teresa showed us so nicely, all the things involved in diabetes care, and I... I, as the provider, am focusing on the deficit, that that she's not also being active right now. You flip it into all of the positives of what people are doing, and then you offer options of the other things that they can potentially add on to their plates. Now, I have the role as a provider for pediatrics of the parents saying, Maureen, can you please talk to them about blah, 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 because they're not doing blah, 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 blah. So I'm like trying to mediate and neutralize 
um, a situation often between parent and child as the parent is trying to is also adding on the plate when maybe the kid or youth is not ready for things to be added on to. So it may seem obvious, but we can speak the we can speak the words, but we have to actually act on the way we are engaging with our patients in the room at that moment in time. So so my students when I train them in my clinics they are taught several things that they must do. Of course, take a good history, find out what's going on with their diabetes, and I have all this list of questions they have to ask. But the very first thing I ask them to do is ask the patient, what is the most difficult thing about having diabetes today? Tell me what your challenges are today, because it changes. You know, one day it could be I'm just really not on time with my medications or I'm missing some of my insulin or I just haven't been able to be active and I know I should be active or my mom's really harassing me all the time and she's commenting on my numbers and how high they've been. It could be, and it changes. And Dr. Fisher next week will talk about the importance of addressing diabetes distress. That's called diabetes distress is, is when a person feels burdened by an aspect of their condition, including the relationship with their provider. There's a whole scale on, a subscale in that distress scale he'll talk to you about a little bit next week is around the relationship with the provider. There's distress around, am I going to get complications? There's distress around nutrition. There's, but there's a whole subset of, of distress around my relationship with my provider. And so it's really, really important that we're not just talking a strengths base or writing a strengths base um, assessment, but they were, we're actually approaching the patient from a strengths base perspective. Um, and this is for any of you who've done business or in the healthcare field. It works everywhere. This pro- approach works for everything. In my world of education, when we're educating um, and working with students, you know, you learn the sandwich method, right? You like the positive the constructive criticism and the positive. So the sandwich is in between is the constructive criticism. But you want to make sure you're building people up and talking about what they're doing well. But in a self-managed condition like diabetes, this is so important. The daily decision-making, the daily mental burden of living with diabetes and thinking about all the things that I need to do or should do or could do, it, it can be very overwhelming for people. And when they come in for their three or four visits a year and they have this interaction with an authority, right, to level that playing field is what we try to do and try to teach, to level the playing field. Because you, as a person with diabetes, you're really the one in charge. You're the one managing your condition, I'm like 1% fly in the wall giving you a little advice three or four times a year, and you're going home and you're self-managing, and all of those components are going into it. So to really feel respected in that visit, to really feel heard, comes from a strengths-based approach. So use language that is neutral, non-judgmental, based on facts, actions, or physiology and biology, is free of stigma, is strengths-based, respectful, inclusive, and imparts hope. Love that one. It's a very nursing concept. Fosters collaboration between patients and providers and is person-centered. So those are recommendations. But I think you need to start, we need to get into a bit of the, what are the words that can cause the damage? So I'm going to go through a few um, examples from my experience, and then I'm going to go into Dr. Jane Dickinson's did a qualitative study on this, and I'm pulling out quotes from her study. 
So um, a lot of the not sharing blood sugars, not wanting to tell people about blood sugars is really about avoiding judgment. So I was going to just give you some fun, fun little stories from my experience of what people will go to, what lengths they'll go to to avoid judgment. So um, we interact with our schools, of course. The, the, many of the kids will go into the school nurse to check their blood sugar. Um, or n- nowadays, with sophisticated, so after Dr. Neinstein's talk last week, I found out one of my seventh graders in Marin, her, her, her nurse can't always be physically at the school, but her nurse is sharing her data on her cell phone. So the kids' continuous glucose monitoring goes to her parents' cell phones, obviously, so they can see her blood sugars during the day. But the nurse chose to share this patient's glucoses so that she could see the blood sugars um, and follow. It's called following the kid because it's her responsibility when it's lunchtime to help this patient dose her extra insulin for the high blood sugar and for her carbohydrates. And so what they set up, it's really wonderful, is they set up a um, FaceTime because the nurse can't always be there, but she's in the office. So the patient was describing to me, yeah, she makes me set up my cell phone, so I'm drawing the insulin in front of her, and then I'm injecting it, and she's seeing my data remotely. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. (laughs) So that's some really wonderful technology, because these nurses cannot be physically present in every school. They may have, like, the office secretary who knows a kid came in, but so she set this up and chose to share. We did not ask her to share the patient's data, because that's an extra burden on the nurse, Um, but she does, and it's wonderful. But what has happened many times in my history with uh, taking care of patients is the, um, we'll get the meter downloading clinic and see the numbers, the real numbers from the blood, from the fingerstick. And then we'll get the data from the school of when the kid goes in and they check their blood sugar and the nurse writes it down. And I'm looking at the school blood sugars and I'm looking at the, my download and they're completely different. So what's happening? The kid is going into the school nurse, not this nice school nurse who's sharing the data and, like, totally open about the data. This is, like, a nurse who's probably made a comment to the kid or maybe the parents are upset about high blood sugars. It may not be the nurse. And so the kid is going into the nurse, checking their blood sugar, and then saying to the nurse, I'm 120. And she's writing down the 120. But the sugar in the meter is 320. And that happens all the time in my world. So, so this is, comes, this behavior comes from that child hearing that high blood sugars are bad. So for any of you here with diabetes who's seen a high blood sugar yourself on your own meter and you see, you, you, your brain goes, uh-oh, what did I do? What did I eat? What shouldn't I do? Oh, you know, you, you, that's happening to any of you who are actually checking your finger or wearing Libres. Um, but for my, my patients who are forming their identities, developing their self-esteem as children, this is really impactful when they've been stigmatized around the high blood sugars. So that's happened, I can't tell you, on multiple occasions I've had to call a school nurse and say, thank you so much for your service. I don't, please don't be upset with this uh, student, and this happens often, but please go into the meter right now and look at the meter memory and then look at your log. And she's like, oh, my God. And she's just totally shocked. And I'm trying to normalize it for her because I normalize it for my families all the time. This happens all the time in clinic. The kid's written log, old day, written log. 
I download the meter, they don't match. So the parent gets angry, and I'm just saying, whoa, hold on, everybody. This is actually quite normal. The kid is avoiding judgment by making up numbers. It's actually quite smart. I've had kids check their cat's paws, their dog, cat's ears, actually, dog's ears, I think you can check. I've had them check their friend's blood sugars. I've had them do all kinds of things. Back in the day, there was a control solution that would come with the meters that would control the meter for normal blood sugars. And um, kids would just take the control out and do a control instead of a glucose because then it would always be between 80 and 120. (laughs) And so that was like maybe 20 years ago, and then we stopped making the control Actually, they didn't stop making the control. They started marking it as special in the download so that you would see, oh, this isn't blood. This is a control solution. But, like, kids were doing this just to get away from people getting mad at them, getting angry with them, and referring to their data as good or bad. So praising the data can be as much of a pitfall as, as um, criticizing the data. Um, one time I had a mother writing a log, and I looked at it, and I said, I'm sorry, Mrs. Whatever. I thought the meter download said 340, but you wrote 240. And she just looked at me and she said, I just couldn't write 340 down. <laughs> it was just too high. And so we had a laugh about it. We joked. I, we, you know, and I said, oh, that's great. It's rare that a parent actually makes a falsification. It's usually the kids. So that was a sweet story from over 20 years ago. So really, these are all examples of protective. They're really protective behaviors to avoid judgment, punishment, shame, feelings of failure. I have had many of my kids actually punished um, for high blood sugars. Um, So part of that camp document that I wrote in the 80s with Dr. Mary Simon was, um, you know, that we should be reinforcing positive behaviors, not the results. That's a no-brainer. It would be like punishing a kid for getting a B when they've been trying their very, very, very hardest. So you're reinforcing the the effort, not necessarily the result. And the same thing applies in diabetes. Um, And if any of you know people or even yourself have this judgment cycle going in your brain, this can work for you as well. So um, I'm going to skip that slide. I'm going to talk about Dr. Dickinson's um, language paper because I pulled out quotes, and I think it brings home the message um, better than anything. So some of the things she asked uh, of her uh, group uh, that she studied was, were the following questions. What, does, what, what diabetes-related word has a negative impact on you? How do you feel when you hear these words, et cetera, et cetera? So I'm just going to go through and pull out some quotes. So question one and two, what diabetes-related words have a negative impact on you? How do you feel when you hear these words? Six themes emerged from an analysis of question one and two. And these are about 50 different participants that she interviewed. Uh, The themes were judgment. They heard words like noncompliance, uncontrolled, good, bad, can't, can, should, shouldn't. Another theme was fear and anxiety. People talked about hearing words like seizure, complications, DKA, blindness, death. Um, And then the third theme was labels, reminders, and assumptions. Diabetic, disease, brittle, sufferer. Um, And that's the suffer is a loader word, right? Because people often say people suffer from their illness. Well, I think that's really up to the person to decide whether they're suffering or not. We should not be imposing suffering on someone else. Uh, So uh, 
the themes continued, oversimplification and directives, you'll get used to it. At least it's not blah, 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 uh, or exercise more. So really like this oversimplification. Um, another theme was misunderstanding, misinformation, or disconnection. Um, you're fine. It'll be rever- it can be reverse. Are you still using insulin? That's the disconnection. Like that's really hard for people. I- I've, I've done it as a provider where I forget part of a history and I might ask someone something that's really obvious. I usually don't ask them if they're still using insulin because... I probably started it for them and um, I would remember and know, but like I might say something stupid like that I forgot from the history and that's a disconnect and that makes people feel really bad. And that happens unfortunately a lot in in diabetes. Body language and tone is huge. Um, and, And when we work with our camp environment and we're training our counselors, we talk to about when they receive a high blood sugar, when their kid has to show them the meter, and it maybe is 350, we actually talk to our counselors about what's called a poker face. They are not to react to that blood sugar. They're to say, thank you for showing it to me, and they write it down. They say, or they can problem solve with them, like say, okay, what do you want to do? Or what do you think happened? Like, But not like, what did you eat? Why are you high? But can you tell me a little bit about what's going on? You know. So usually the counselor's living with the kid all day, all, all day, so they know they were going to the pool, but it rained, so they didn't go to the pool, and they got their insulin cut at lunch, and that's why they're high, so they already know. Um, but they are taught not to react. We teach a poker face. Because body language and tone of, of your provider can really influence like how comfortable you feel in a room. Uh, question three, what particular experience do you recall that involved words and diabetes? Three themes emerge. General public. <laughs> I already shared the story in the beginning. Um, the food police, healthcare providers, um, offices seeing uncontrolled in the medical record. So control, as you hear, is a, one of the big words, and I'll go through the list of words at the end. I struggle with it as a provider because it's coded into the way we code the visit. So it takes time I have to go in and actually edit what the patient sees on their after-visit summary. Um, but what I try to do with my patients is say, I just want you to know your AVS, your after-visit summary, is going to say uncontrolled because your A1C is above 7.5 or whatever, and it falls into this classified uncontrolled. The auditors want us to call it this so that we get better revenue from the bill, you know, from billing. From billing, it's complicated mess on the backside. But p- families and patients, really, that affects them because they're doing in the case that I can remember most clearly is a current student in our program who's been a, been a patient for many years. Um, she shared the story publicly. I won't share her name, but she shared the story publicly where she saw in her AVS, you know, uncontrolled. And she said to me, it's like, I'm wearing a pump. I'm wearing a sensor. I'm uh, bolusing four to five times a day. I'm exercising. I'm a student. You know, and it was just that the A1C was out of this very specific target range. And so she walked away and she actually confronted her provider who she had a very respectful relationship with. And she said, I don't want to see this on my AVS. It's too discouraging. So these are things that the, that the folks are validating and reporting in Jane's qualitative study. Uh, of course, the media perpetuates tons of stereotypes. Question four and five, if you could ask your diabetes professionals to stop using one word, what would it be? <laughs> if there's another word that you like them to stop using, please share it. So three themes emerged, stop judging. So People were saying anything that begins with should. Another one said control. I think it's just an illusion. Um, stop labeling, diabetic, noncompliance. 
Um, third theme was stop discussing complications. I don't want to hear about the complications at every visit. I totally heard it the first time. I get it. Let's move on. Focus on the positive. Question six, how do you think not using these words, those words would affect your diabetes experience? Three themes emerged. Suggestions for healthcare providers. Focus on the person, not the diagnosis. You'll treat both more effectively that way. I like that one. Um, these words will be replaced with other words. People use words to pigeonhole us instead of actually seeing and listening to the person. Uh, and then third here is if healthcare providers stop using these words, what would happen? Increased feelings of respect or being listened to, relief, supported, comfortable. Here's some of the quotes that I pulled out. I would have more faith in my healthcare providers if they didn't use words that I think convey a lack of information, sensitivity, or understanding of my experience. Participant 25, better language would help shift the shame, blame, and self-loathing from the person to the disease allows for hope. Participant 23, could get to meaningful conversation more quickly with less emotional obstacles and baggage. So what do we do? So we think about glucose's data, which therapies can be adjusted. So I talk to my families about this from the very get-go, or my adult, young adult patients is, I look at your information as data. I don't want you ever feeling like this is the confessional in here. We are looking this. Your life is real. There's ups, there's downs, there's obstacles. And please, I want to, and I will correct um, people from using good and bad. My students, I do. Um, a whole talk when I teach my behavior class for 10 weeks. And so we kind of like jokingly help each other and catch each other as we're using words um, in, in class and doing scenarios. And I have even said at one point, I think I said like a good A1C and the student was like raising your hand, Maureen, <laughs> you said good A1C. And I was like, oh, you're right. So I still can fall into, and control is a hard one for me, is I'm so programmed to say diabetes control that it's been hard for me to start using the word manage instead of control. Um, other things is, again, like I said, reinforcing the behaviors, not the results. Um, I may have said this, I say it so often, but forgive me if I already said this, but the only bad number is the one that's not there, the one we don't see. Um, there are no good or bad glucoses. You, you, we can use terminology like in range, above range. Um, I use check instead of test because in the pediatric world, a test assumes a grade. And so we in pediatrics convert to saying check your sugar instead of testing your blood sugar. Um, so here are some of the, some of the words and I started on the top, hopefully you can see, compliance. Compliance is literally my worst trigger word. It's worse than someone saying diabetic to me. <laughs> um, why would that be? Why do you think that I have such a hard time with the word compliance, non-compliance? What does that mean to you? Do you do it, is it obeying a rule? Obeying, no, sorry, it's... It's, it, it, are you doing it or not? Yeah. So it's trying to describe the behavior. But when you say someone's not compliant, you're actually not describing what's going on. Obeying the rules. So I heard that. So in the word compliance, not compliance, is inherent the concept of a hierarchy. This is a self-managed condition. We are, as providers, guides, instructors, assistants. Sometimes I feel like I'm a cheerleader, which is totally a positive role as well. But 
I am not living the condition of my patient. Well, I am, but most of the providers aren't living the condition of their patients. So it's a self-managed condition. The power base should be in the patient's hands. And if I use the term compliance or noncompliance, my patient's not obeying my rules. That is what's inherent in that word. And that's why I find it so offensive. And it's everywhere in the medical center. And we're trying, so our students get this lecture, our student nurse practitioners are really pretty good because they they understand this concept of like reducing the hierarchy or evening out the hierarchy between between provider and patient. And in the med center, this is happening as well. And we do a lot of interprofessional education here too with pharmacy and dentistry and medicine. And I believe the medical curriculum is really working to get rid of this, this, some of this terminology. But there's a lot of legacy and a lot of culture here. And so when I have physicians I absolutely love that I practice with that I've run eight-hour seminars for on this kind of stuff and still fall into the trap of using compliance because that's how they were trained. And so it's a hard one to shake, but believe me, it is one that I stop every, anyone in their tracks when I hear that word in my clinic's environments because I, it's very, very offensive to me when it's a condition that is primarily self-managed um, and very little happens really in the provider's office. So there's so many other ways. It's also one physician 20 years ago, actually she was my physician for a while. I love her. Um, and, but now I see Dr. Neinstein, young, super technology. So I changed to him a few years ago. He's right here, and I just find him so engaging and very, very, very cutting edge. But this doctor I saw for a few years who I really loved, 20 years ago she was corrected a resident who used the term noncompliant. She said, hmm, what does that mean? And then the resident started describing, well, the patient hasn't been seen for six months, they're not taking the medications as as prescribed, and, and this physician kept saying, okay, and? And why? And so... The resident was seeing that she was, he, she was wanting him or her to get at the behaviors and the barriers to why they weren't doing what the resident thought they should be doing. And she just very politely said, that's not a very um, productive word, and I would like you to describe what's happening as opposed to label it. I mean, it's a, it's a shift, but it's really an important shift in our, in our world as we're trying to practice respectful, inclusive, patient-centered care. So control, I think we've spent enough time on this. It's elusive. So when I told a mother of one of my patients that we were trying to stop using the word control and and replace it with managed diabetes, she looked at me and she said, duh, because you can never have controlled diabetes. It's just so elusive and it's just, you're always feeling like you'll never get there. So change the language. Let's not set our patients up for, for failure. Um, so this goes through all the different ways control and compliance are used. Um, diabetic, I think I've already spent enough time. Person first language. It can. It's now only recommended to be used as an adjective, as in diabetic eye disease. Um, my stepkids, who I've been in my life since they were eight and ten, now they're twenty nine and twenty eight and thirty. Um, they love this because they're really their dad's a grammarian. My husband's a grammarian, and so. Um, Years ago, I used to joke with them about um, a, a diabetic foot, and they would like find that just really, really funny. Like, oh, the foot has diabetes. 
so they are always bringing things to my attention where the improper use of the term diabetic, but diabetic eye disease is real. It's not a diabetic eye. It's diabetic eye disease. Um, again, a diabetic eye is, a, is an offensive term for, for, for many of us. I think Teresa remembers a story where when he had a fellow did a whole lecture called diabetic eye and uh, we had to do some retraining of that fellow um, because <laughs> there were three people with diabetes in the room going, oh, my God, this is a, this is a diabetic eye. It's not my eye, but it has been labeled by this um, training doc as a diabetic eye. Uh, and then um, normal. So that's an interesting one. So the medical world uses this. If you don't have disease, you're considered normal. So a normal patient. So what does that mean that I am? I'm abnormal. So normal is another word that this document is asking people to try to avoid in the, the field. So that's um, the end of this talk. Um, so I teach a cohort. I teach a diabetes minor, and this is my 2019 cohort, um, which was really funny because if you see here in the up here, uh, the sign, the banners are up again for this year's alumni weekend. I spoke to the alumni group last year on this very talk, um, and so we all came out after class one day and took a picture. So these, this is, these are our future nurse practitioners. They're a pediatric adult and family, and they spend 80 to 100 hours with me in training um, in a diabetes minor here in the school. There's three courses. Um, and, uh, here's, they are with me at a family camp. Um, I work with a community organization called diabetes youth and family, and they come to camp with me. Um, they do community in services. This is an in-service in the community for school nurses in Marin. This is them wearing, uh, learning to wear pumps in class. It's a great group. And here we are up at, uh, in the mountains at, uh, Bearskin Meadow, the camp that I've gone to since I was 19 years old. And another picture. Fun. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.